Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I wanted to take a few minutes before we get into the um, class this morning to go over um, the um, projects for growth, lesson one, if anyone did that. Um, so this is class participation time if you have your stuff done. Um, but let's talk about um, question one, part A. What are some of the ways you have used the Bible as if it were a book about you? And how does seeing the Bible as a book about God, not primarily about you, change things? Hi, come on in. Which class is this? The Women of the Word class. Hi. So we're just going over the first question in the, the homework this morning. Thank you. Um, what about part B? How prone are you to measuring the strength of your faith by the strength of your feelings? I think it's easy to get trapped in the thought that my relationship with God is measured by, like, did I feel like that was really good time in the Word? Did I feel moved by the Word? Did I feel, you know, and we can measure our response to just faithfully spending time with God in his word to whether or not I feel whatever. And I think that it, over time, if you'll give in to those thoughts, you know, when you don't feel like getting in the word, then mm -hmm. it's a slippery slope to yeah. no longer spending that time. For sure. Thank you. I thought this one kind of went well with the first question about, like, thinking about you. Because mm -hmm. um, you did talk about, like, not counting down our feelings, which I thought was really good. Because we also talked last week about, like, renewing our thoughts and you know our mind I think for both of those things like our feelings and our thoughts going into it with like a me like did I feel like that was really good like Kayla said or even just like I think I know a lot about God mm -hmm. just focusing more on me and how I, you know my perspective yeah. instead of looking at it just biblically going into it more with you know that attitude yeah that's great thank you 
Um, what about part C? When was the last time you felt uncomfortably aware of your lack of biblical knowledge, and did these feelings lead you to take any action? If so, what? That's great. And then lastly, have you practiced any of the unhelpful ways of this of study we discussed in class? And in what ways do you think that has limited your ability to grow? opportunity to grow versus just kind of keeping your head down and being more introspective and self-centered like that. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I think too, um, it was really helpful hearing her talk about like my relying on someone else to really be the one who's learning about God and I'm learning from them. I think that's very easy to shift in, especially if you're like, I don't feel like I have a lot of time or I think I need help with direction. Um, and I love how Mary Beth said, are you sitting at the feet of Jesus or sitting at the foot of Jesus? I think that was mm -hmm. so big. Because I think it's very tempting to, like, especially if you're busy or there's something that you really find your identity in, whether it be your family or other things, to kind of see that as your primary and then almost being a believer, like, second. I think very shift into that concept. And when you do that, then you just kind of take that responsibility of, like, knowing the word and putting it on someone else, too. Because, like, well, that's not really mine. Like, not seeing yourself as a believer first. So anything else is going to come second. Like, knowing about the word yourself is going to come first always. And so... I feel like that was a really big thing because I think that that's something that I've seen in the past, like relying on Christ or, you know, mm -hmm. or Bible studies that I've been in to, like, guide my personal relationship. Yeah, thank you. I think we've all probably been there at some point. <clears throat> okay, well, we're going to get started this morning. Um, so I asked to help with this lesson because the storyline of the Bible talk at the Biblical Counseling Conference um, was the talk that impacted me the most when Jocelyn Wallace gave it. Um, if you know me at all, speaking and teaching is not in my comfort zone. Um, and so the fact that I'm up here this morning should tell you how passionate I feel about this topic. <laughs> I went into that conference with a lot going on in my life personally and expected a talk on grief or suffering to be the most beneficial, but was blown away. Oh, <laughs> Mary Beth's signaling me. I'll, I'll get to that. Um, but I was blown away by how much I resonated with every word Jocelyn said as she unpacked the storyline of the Bible. So I hope you can, I can help you understand the same way that she helped me this morning. There's a lot of information and a lot of verses to go through. Um, so I want to pray that God would be glorified as we unpack this today. 
Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity this morning um, just to be together as women learning how to become better students of your word. I just pray that this class would um, renew our zeal or teach us new habits, um, just different practical ways that we could be digging deeper um, into your word, the tool that you've given us to know you more, God, which would transform our minds and our hearts, God, and set them on you. So I just pray that this morning would be edifying to all of us, God, and glorifying to you. And I lift this up in your son's name. Amen. So as we pulled in the parking lot this morning, my husband said, if you feel like you are speaking very slowly, you are probably speaking at the pace a normal person speaks. <laughs> so, um, so I talk really fast. Anyone listening online probably will need to like slow it down for, like below the one. And if I get nervous, I talk faster. Um, but I want to reiterate what Mary Beth said last week. I give um, Jen Wilkin and then Jocelyn Wallace most of the credit for this this morning. It's most of their thoughts. Very few are original to me. So last week, we talked about the importance of growing in Bible literacy. It takes effort to build, but unless we know why we're doing this, unless we have a clear sense of purpose, we will not be able to sustain our labor or our efforts. So this morning, I want to ask you to consider what is the purpose we should have in mind as we study? Why should we study God's word with purpose in mind? And our purpose should always be looking for the big story of the Bible. So before we dive in, we need to first remember what Mary Beth taught on last week. And these are the first um, blanks on your handout uh, for the storyline of the Bible. The Bible is not primarily a book about us, but a book about God. We need to let the mind or what we know about God transform our heart. And lastly, we need to practice good study methods. Knowing the storyline of the Bible can help us grow more deeply in all of those areas. The Bible is one consistent storyline of one consistent story for one consistent purpose. Each of the 66 books contributes to telling the big story, a story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The Bible purposes to tell us this big story in 1,000 smaller stories from its first page to its last. The overarching theme of the Bible is that God is a kind king reigning over his kingdom. This has implications on every human being that has ever existed, whether they acknowledge God as king or not. This helps us to understand and to love our king. He did not speak the world into existence in order to have subjects in which to rule, but which to love. Jocelyn always repeated through her lecture that she gave, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed perfectly in love, so they made little objects that they could pour their love out on, which is us. This has implications. Oh, sorry. The goal of the entire story is to bring glory to God. So it's important to note that God has never functioned without a plan guiding his interactions, and he has his glory and us in mind the entire time. So we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And next is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is telling us about the rule and reign of God. It tells us of the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God's word uses different genres to do this. Historical narrative, poetry, wisdom literature, law, prophecy, parables, and epistles, all conspiring to expand our understanding of the rule and reign of God in different ways. So first, we're going to start by looking at creation. God has a purpose for humans, and it's really important to understand our purpose, because if you do not understand the purpose for which you're made, you will not understand how to solve your problems biblically. So the first point under creation is God created humans to bear his image and likeness. <clears throat> Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is a verse we're going to come back to multiple times through this talk, and it says, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes, I can. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. <laughs> it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of sea, fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the podcast that Jocelyn and Janet did over this topic, they used the example of when kings would conquer a nation, they would leave a beautifully designed statue of themselves in place, um, the place that they now rule, to show the people to whom they now are loyal to, to whom they pay taxes. Um, and this is the same type of language used to describe how God made us to bear His image. We represent him and display his character to the watching world around us. The, <clears throat> excuse me, the second point is God created humans for relationship with himself and others. In Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, uh, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. God has a plan that he wants humans to carry out on his behalf. Think back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. First, God consecrated humans with his favor and then deployed them into the created world, telling them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In Psalm 72, 19, it says, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And in Isaiah 6, 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Second, we see that God created humans to rule and have dominion over his created world on his behalf. We are his ambassadors. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And third, God instructed humans to subdue the created world and bring it to allegiance and obedience to God's standards. Um, so all of Psalm 145 is relevant, but we're just going to read verses 10 to 13 for the sake of time. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Live God's way, think God's way, and function God's way, and when you do that, you'll bring God's blessing into the world. God shaped and created his humans into either a man or woman. Genesis 2.23 says, then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
The creation mandate given to us by our Creator was designed to help us know precisely how we fit into the kingdom and function according to His plan for creation. We, as fallen people, try to create our own purposes and our own definitions of right and good. Failing to understand God's plan for creation can cause us to inappropriately misinterpret Scripture in the same way, by cherry-picking verses or twisting one verse out of context to meet our felt needs at the time. The creation story helps us to know how we fit into God's glorious plan. The second storyline we're going to examine is the fall. In Genesis 3, Satan invited Adam and Eve to write their own definitions of good and success that were apart from God's standards, and as a result, they were ruined. Humans rejected and rebelled against God's purpose and plan. And that's the first point under the fall on your handout. Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Our glorious God defined righteousness for humans. So this is a progression of verses we're going to go through. Genesis 2.9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And then Romans 1.21-23, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The next point on your handout is humans missed the mark of righteousness that God demanded. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Isaiah 64.6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The next point is rebellion always causes wrath from the superior who instituted the rules and results in punishment. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There are grave consequences to sin. God promised that if they disobeyed him, it would kill them, in Genesis 2.17. This shows us that death is not meant to be a natural part of life. There are three main types of death that were introduced. The first is the spiritual separation from God. The second is physical death, and you can reference Romans 5.12. And then the most devastating part is eternal death, which is what would happen if a human physically died by spiritually, while spiritually separated from God. Um, and 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. A second consequence is that humans begin to experience emotions they were not created to understand. So in Genesis 3.8, we see, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They were, they were introduced to fear, which they weren't ever meant to feel because of their sin. And then in Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, but we know that after they ate of the fruit of the tree, they were trying to cover themselves, so they experienced shame for the first time. Thirdly, relationships between other humans were affected. Let's just think back to 2020 and how should we wear a mask? Should we not wear a mask? Our church went through a church split. And then even now to this day, the way people are willing to communicate with one another online, that they're not willing to communicate face to face and just how things come out. And so um, relationships have definitely been affected by the fall. And the fourth consequence, humans were required to function under curses instead of original blessing. In Genesis 3, 14 to 19, 
Um, we see that enmity with God, pain in childbearing, wives' desires that are contrary to their husbands, and that the ground is cursed. Human bodies now require covering. Humans were removed from their paradise for their own protection, and humans now experience the wrath of their creator. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then Romans 8.7, for the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it could not. God's wrath is difficult to grasp, but it is right and deserved for each one of us. Jocelyn said, created for nothing other than living within the waterfall of God's eternal, overflowing, loving kindness, humans are now disconnected and separated from his personal daily presence because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie that they were just like him. But praise God, that is not the end of the story. Scripture is always meant to point us to the reality that only one man was perfect in righteousness. We need a savior. When we study remembering that we are fallen, it leads us to a place where we can find true redemption and hope in our fallen state which leads us to the th third storyline woven in the Bible, redemption or the rescue. So I have another class participation moment, so don't leave me hanging up here, please. <laughs> so we're gonna review um, what were we created for. Relationship with Christ and others, or with God and others. Yeah. And then what do we have instead? Yeah, thank you. Um, so created for nothing except enjoying the presence of God and being ravished by his love, we've been destroyed by the consequences of the choices they made to treasonously rebel against his authority in their lives. But in the midst of this terrible mess comes the good news. God's plan to rescue humans from their terrible consequences and not just, to, not just that, but to redeem or buy back to a restored and right relationship with him. This is God's rescue plan. Luke 19.10 says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus redeemed humans from slavery to sin. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The next point on your outline, Jesus is the perfect redeemer. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus has existed eternally. John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Okay. Existed eternally. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then the next point is Jesus' divinity was joined to humanity at the miraculous incarnation. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The next point is Jesus lived vicariously for fallen humans, meaning he did not sin in a sin-filled world. Philippians 2.7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You can also reference Isaiah 53.3. Jesus died vicariously so that we might be healed through his death. Romans 3.25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Redemption for humans never would have been possible without the resurrection, the defeat of death, and the acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Matthew 17, 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if, not, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. When we study, we must look for the hope of redemption found in the good news of the gospel. The gospel is called the good news because it offers ruined people the hope and chance of being rescued. When is the good news the good news? When you understand the gravity of the bad news. No one is exempt from this. All humans everywhere are commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to place their faith in the solution that he has provided to resolve their problem with sin and rebellion. The Bible proclaims the story of God's redemption and the lengths God will go to deliver his people. And so finally, we study looking for the theme of restoration. It's really exciting to read a book that is a page turner and not know how it's going to end, but that's not a very exciting way to live. Isn't it amazing that God has told us in advance what to expect out of the story? He's prepared for humanity. One day Jesus will come back and all of his saints will join him in ruling over his creation like we were designed to do in that initial Genesis verse we read. The end of the story is the whole point. John 11:24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus spent his final days on earth preparing his disciples for his return to heaven. Matthew 28, 18-20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The next point on your outline, we also see from that verse he was not leaving them without help. He gave them the promise of the Holy Spirit. Thousands of new believers lived out their new community and began taking care of each other. You can just read Acts to see that. And as the apostles traveled, several of them wrote letters to the churches to instruct them in the ways of righteousness. In the 1600 years plus since Jesus, um, since then, the church has steadily grown as more individuals have heard the gospel and believed in Jesus for their salvation and been refined to become more holy using scripture as the written standards of God's righteousness. Matthew 16, 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The next point. At some point in the future, we have been promised that Jesus will once again personally and physically intervene in the lives of humans on earth. You can reference Revelation 19, 11 to 16, and then in Matthew 19, 28, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. God's word tells us that the next event in prophecy is the rapture of the church by Jesus Christ. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The next point on your outline, we also learn from God's word that there will be a judgment day when believers reach heaven and each Christian will stand in front of Jesus to have their life evaluated. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In 1 Corinthians 4.5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Humans who are unredeemed at the time of rapture will experience a period of tribulation as God judges them for rejecting Jesus. Deuteronomy 4.30 When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. And you can also reference Matthew 24.4-12. Judgments for all those in rebellion against the true king will occur. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. For 1,000 years, Jesus and all of his glorified saints will reign on the cursed earth. Remember back to Genesis 1.26-28, what it's supposed to be like. Jeremiah 23, 5-6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which we will, he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. At the end of the millennium, Satan will be freed from his holding place and stir up one final rebellion amongst unsaved humans born during that period against Christ and against the holy city of Jerusalem. Revelation 20, 7 through 8 says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. In Matthew 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the, eternal fire, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Following the defeat of Satan, everyone who has chosen to live in rebellion against their creator will be called into account and given their final punishment. In Revelation 20, 11 through 15, 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The scriptures culminate with a beautiful description of the new heaven and the new earth that God the Father prepares as his eternal home and the final destination for all of the redeemed. Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. I didn't cry at all, and I practiced it. <laughs> um, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Excuse me. For the former things have passed away. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what's coming. And he said, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. In Romans 8.19, we, we see for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we should study looking for the theme of redemption restoration, excuse me, to see a God who is in control and sovereignly rules and reigns in a way that he establishes perfect order to right all the wrongs. Future glorification is coming. This leads us to pursue sanctification and live with hope, which as good students leads us to respond to the word of God as we study. So every human being that has ever existed was made by God and for God. We see in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. In Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. God created humans for relationship, and we are all in some type of relationship with him as his creation. We are all accountable to the one who made us. Yeah. Could you, um, I missed the study on purpose always leads us to a... Oh, response, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, Ecclesiastes 11.9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. You can also see Genesis 3 and Romans 1 for references for that. The very first inhabitants of the earth, Adam and Eve, chose to violate their relationship with their creator and attempt to live independently of his wisdom and righteousness. Jesus lived on this earth in perfect alliance with his relationship with God and was dependent on God's wisdom and righteousness. At some point, the course of events will proceed and Jesus will come back for the believers and punish those who have rebelled. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question is not if people will bend a knee to their Savior, but from where they will respond. Every single human that was ever made by God and for God will need to respond to the facts in Scripture about him and who God is and who we are in relation to him. So Matthew 4, 17, from the time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 1, 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The next point um, on your outline. These smaller stories make up one big story of God's reign and rule and invite us to see ourselves in relation to him. I know this is a lot of information and a lot of verses to reference as you go through each of these um, four points. Uh, but I want to stop and look at how this might play out as you study. And Jen gives two examples in her chapter for this week. And the first one is Noah. This story models creation as God's ret God returns the earth to a state of disorder by bringing the flood and then reorders it as he did in Genesis 1. He separated the waters from dry land, restores vegetation, and then repopulates uh, creation, giving humans the command to be fruitful and multiply. Noah also models redemption. God's faithful servant is willingly shut into the ark by God, passes through the waters of destruction, and is called forth to new life. And just as we are ready to proclaim Noah perfect in righteousness, he models the fall by getting drunk and laying shamefully naked in his tent. This reminds us that only one man is perfect in righteousness and able to save us. Jen says that though the story of Noah may hold meaning for us apart from the reference point of the big story, when linked to the big story, the smaller story takes on the depth and riches it was intended to have. In relation to the meta-narrative, the story of Noah comes into focus as a story about God. God creates, God orders, God preserves life, God provides a deliverer, and God alone can save. The next example Jen gives is the Good Samaritan. On page 56 in her book, she says that we often learn this story as a morality tale that challenges us to be kind to others even when it is inconvenient. But how is Jesus referencing the meta-narrative when he crafted this story? The Good Samaritan is a parable that echoes the themes of fall, redemption, and restoration. It is the story of a man rejected by the Jews, the Samaritan, preserving the life of a man who would surely die without his intervention, the man by the road. The Samaritan is under no obligation to intervene, but does so at great personal expense, providing for the helpless man's ongoing care and promising to return to settle accounts. Seen in relation to the meta-narrative, the par parable of the Good Samaritan is a story about God. God sends his only son to be rejected by his own, to save us from certain death, and to restore all things. Are we called to be like Noah? Yes. Are we called to be like the Good Samaritan? Yes, but not simply because they're positive examples to inspire us to righteousness. These stories point us to Christ. They point us to the big story of God's reign and rule, inviting us to see ourselves in relation to him. God in his wisdom has chosen different genres or ways to tell the big story. The beauty of the Bible is that it is literature, and in order for us to see the smaller stories and how they relate to the big storyline, God has given us 66 different books of the Bible. He has given us the law, so that we will understand our need for redemption through Christ. It also shows the believer how to obey God by illustrating his character and calling us to be conformed to his image, thereby beginning the process of restoration of the image of God that was lost at the fall. He uses books of poetry that, remain, that range from laments to blessings to hymns of praise to prophecies, 
Poetic language and imagery can be used by biblical authors to reinforce any part of the meta-narrative. Psalm 23 points to redemption and restoration, and God's response to the questioning of Job in chapters 30 to 40 points to creation and fall. God's word also has wisdom literature, books like Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Like the law, wisdom literature has a way of showing us the gaps in our sanctification and prompting us to respond in obedience. It, too, points the believer to our need for redemption and ongoing work of restoration. When we study books of prophecy, we learn that God does exactly what he says he will do. As we've seen in the fulfillment of prophecy in the books of Daniel and Isaiah, this points us to the certainty that the as-yet unfulfilled prophecy will also be meticulously fulfilled. Prophecy points to the meta-narrative saying, Redemption has been accomplished, and restoration is a certainty. Though not a part of this book or the main purpose of this class, I feel it's important to note that as we study and approach God's word, we should be thinking of how the big story applies to our life as a whole. By doing this, we can know the basis of our relationships is not our own righteousness. We're not focusing on rescuing ourselves because God has done it all for us. We have nothing to prove, and we can choose humility. We can be peacemakers. All human conflict conflicts look like irritations to avoid with the greatest rescue from the conflict with our creator. We have a chance to be like Jesus. The good news becomes the good news when we understand how bad the bad news is. We have the opportunity to become more like Jesus and the hope of restoration. This should increase our passion for the gospel and give us courage because we know the end of the story. Therefore, take heart, ladies. Have patience with yourselves as you practice this new skill of having the big story in view. And Mary Beth will talk more about patience next week. So this week in your book for homework, um, I think there's a few more questions to review and then to continue to read through First Peter. And then if you have the book and are following along, um, you can read chapter three of the Woman of the Word book, or she has a podcast too. I don't know if we mentioned that last week. There are 30-minute episodes that go right along with the chapters of the book you can also listen to. Um, yep. Yeah, it's really recent. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. You mentioned the Joyful Journey podcast that mm -hmm. goes through this. What was that one? Um, they do at the very, very beginning. Yeah, it's the creation mandate. Yep, and the one after it also it's goes through. Like the second podcast. Mm -hmm. Yep.